Okay, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Chris and Paul Show. I always forget what episode and season we're on whenever we start. We're clearly on season one, but this is episode, I want to say seven. I always forget. It's not, Chris. Okay. It's, uh, it says episode eight. It's episode eight. There you go. I got it right that time. I'm always in ballpark range, so that's what counts. Horseshoes, hand grenades, and atomic bombs just need to be in ballpark range for them to work. As always, joined by my colleague and buddy, Chris Beardley. How are you doing this morning, Chris? Doing well, thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Okay, so I, I were doing this on Riverside on audio because we had a few people complaining about the audio that basically I was loud as an Iron Maiden concert and you were as quiet as a church mouse. So we're going to see if Riverside fixes some of these problems. A couple of other people recommended Audacity. I actually have it on here, but Riverside's already kind of built into the app with uh, Spotify. It's like, hey, do you want to use Riverside? So it looks pretty cool. I don't know what it's going to sound like. So if anybody's getting their ears blown out by me talking right now, I'm sorry. First time using this app. If, if Chris still sounds like he's you know, talking through a pillow or whatever to you guys, then sorry about that. We'll, we'll, we're definitely going to, because of you guys being uh, so avid listeners and loving the podcast so much, we're going to do our best to make sure that the audio is up to speed for you guys. Let's get into today. Um, I'm pretty stoked. I've been stoked about most all of these. I think I was the least stoked uh, about the frequency one, but but it ended up being, I think, our best one that we did to date. And it wasn't that I wasn't excited about talking about frequency, but it just doesn't seem like a sexy topic. So, I, I, I guess. I think it was, yeah, I think it was very popular at the time when we did it. I think actually, it's been it. our most listened to episode. So, it, it did well. And I actually thought that was our best one to date as far as just, uh, just the overall energy and flow of things. Today... It sounds the least sexy, but I'm probably as excited about doing this one as any of them because I feel like over the past couple of years, number one, you spent a multitude of years. We're going to cover fatigue today for those uh, who uh, didn't read anything or whatever. We haven't kind of given a, a like a preview of what we're going to go over. So you spent a few years really looking over fatigue models. And then the last couple of years, as we have talked and worked together and done stuff, I came to the realization, I always like for you to let me just keep like understanding or learning or going through certain data. And then I come back to you and I say something and you're like, yeah, you just wait around. You don't uh, spoon feed me any of the information. So as I pilfer through the information in the last couple of years, I remember it's like one day I was like, it really is fatigue is honestly the single most important factor, in my opinion, in really breaking through progress plateaus understanding how fatigue works, understanding how to mitigate it and minimize it. I feel like that's probably the single most important factor in really getting through plateaus, getting past uh, a place where you're stuck and not making progress. Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would go one step further. I would say that it's impossible to understand how hypertrophy works without understanding fatigue. And it's impossible really to program optimally any strength training program for muscle growth without understanding fatigue. I mean, essentially, um, whenever I read sort of articles that are intended to explain how hypertrophy works or they're promoting some particular point of view and they say, oh, well, fatigue is doing this, but it's complicated. So let's kind of just ignore it. I'm like, 
they're literally leaving out the only thing that matters because without understanding how fatigue is working, we're never going to actually understand how muscle growth actually happens. So I would, I would go one step further than just saying, you know, it's really critical, which it is for the advanced lifter. I'd say it's critical for everything really that we're doing. Absolutely. And what is also interesting is once you learn um, how fatigue works is that it's going to have uh, an interference effect on both the ability to recruit motor units and the ability to actually experience mechanical tension. And then it can have long lasting effects that continues to do both of those things as well. So we're going to get into all of that stuff today. You have, as usual, have a, a bullet point outline for us. So there's a couple of different types of fatigue. I don't know, anytime that we start talking about this kind of stuff, my mind goes into a million different directions because of all the stuff I've ever heard or read or whatever. I'm going to try to stick to the bullet point stuff. So we're the types of fatigue, and one of the most annoying things is when I'm sitting here trying to do the podcast with you and there's always something going on in the background. I don't know if you can hear the garbage truck or whatever. Like, There's nothing I can do about that. Can I, that I, you can't hear it? Okay, that's pretty I can't cool. hear it. I can't hear anything in the background there. That's pretty cool. Okay, so... Um, the couple of different types of fatigue that we're going to talk about today will be what we call central fatigue and peripheral fatigue. So should we define, should we define fatigue first before we even kind of drop down that level though? Because a lot of people are going to have a mistaken idea about fatigue, you know, because there's so many people who hear the word fatigue and they think that it's how they feel. That's okay. That was the other one I meant to bring up. I had a list of bullet points. So fatigue at a very basic level, when I think of it, is just a temporary and reversible process or state of being kind of that has to do with specific physiological mechanisms. But it's measurable, though, as well. So when we're talking about that temporary and reversible phenomenon, it's a temporary and reversible reduction in exercise performance, which we can measure. So when people say we are fatigued, what we actually mean in exercise science is that we have a reduction in our exercise performance as a result of you know some previous bout of exercise or staying up all night or whatever it might be. But essentially, it's measurable. It's always objective. Whereas I think in the fitness industry, it's, so many people hear the word fatigue. They think they think it's how they feel. I'm like, no, no, that's that's kind of the the wider general public in, in, in kind of idea about fatigue. They feel the fatigue, whereas we're not talking about that. So any time we're talking about fatigue, it's always the objective outcome measurement. I think that was that was also the thing that hit me over the past couple of years is having that shift as far as that goes as well was fatigue. So even it's constantly talked about in the fitness community or strength community or any of that kind of stuff for people who are not willing to get out there and really dig into the data and research that we have on fatigue. It's always referred to as stuff like systemic fatigue. And I don't, whenever they say that it generally tells me that they don't understand the different fatigue mechanisms or how they can be tested. And as you said, I think the biggest component here is when people talk about fatigue when we're talking about actual exercise fatigue, these are testable components. These are not like, oh, I feel really tired today. Or I was, like you said, I was up late at night. So, or I'm sluggish today, or, you know, I don't want to get off the couch. That is not what we talk about when we're talking about fatigue. You want to talk about being lethargic. That's a different kind of word. That's yeah, cool. I get it. You feel tired. But when we were talking about exercise fatigue, we're generally talking about central nervous system fatigue and we're talking about peripheral fatigue. Yeah. I mean, in our our kind of world that we operate, those are the only real two 
possibilities. I mean, obviously, the endurance athletes are going to talk about cardiac fatigue, and when they and that kind of creates a bit of a terminology issue because they often use the word systemic fatigue. What they really mean is cardiovascular system fatigue, and that's a separate thing from what we'll be talking about because it's not really relevant for us. But essentially, uh, yeah, what we're dealing with is just the the central nervous system fatigue or the peripheral fatigue mechanisms and just coming back to something you said you know basically if somebody's feeling lethargic and yet when they go to the gym they've got no reduction in strength from their last workout then basically we would say you're not fatigued and they would look at us and go what are you talking about of course i'm fatigued i feel terrible I'm like no sorry uh, as far as exercise science is concerned you are not in a state of fatigue because you have just basically equaled or improved on your previous performance therefore you are not actually fatigued by definition because fatigue is always an objective measurement now people can say oh well i don't like that definition more tough because the entire of the exercise science literature is based on that definition so if you want to change it then you're basically starting from scratch so (laughs) here's here's what we had to work with so for the person who doesn't like that definition they get the dr wall chart that has the the faces where it's a one to ten like pain scale and like rate your fatigue on a scale of one to 10. And it's just a, a, like a perception about your feeling, right? Like, it's just like, I feel very tired, but how many times have you ever walked into the gym and you felt tired, thought you were going to have a crappy session and absolutely blew PRs out of the water or had a great training session or whatever, and were able to progressively overload a multitude of movements from the previous week, which means you don't have fatigue. Okay. Or you're absolutely, you're fatigued very minimally. But the point is it's, it's a testable thing. You can test whether or not you're suffering from significant fatigue. Like that's an absolutely, actual thing. Absolutely. Yeah. And there are, there are, I mean, to be fair, there are what are called self-reported recovery scales. So people can use a kind of, uh, you know, how recovered do I feel from my previous, previous workout on a self-report basis. And they have, you know, have some value, but ultimately for the literature that we're talking about today, they aren't really particularly relevant because what we're talking about is the objective measurement. Instead. You know, another one in the list that we, we didn't add, which I think is so critically important to add to here is the idea that you can increase recovery by like sleep, food, etc., so forth and so on especially when it comes to like calcium ion related fatigue. Now there is some degree, like we talked about with glycogen, making sure you have adequate glycogen storage. But when you hear a lot of people talk about, well, you need to sleep more, you need to eat. Once there's been, and we'll get into that, but I just wanted to put it in there because we didn't add it to the list. That one comes up quite often is like, how do you minimize calcium ion related fatigue? And once it occurs, it's just going to run its course. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think there is, obviously, we're kind of jumping a little bit ahead and we need to walk through these mechanisms. But just to kind of answer the question, I think you can make things worse by not sleeping and not eating. (laughs) But but I don't think you can make things better by sleeping more and eating more. I mean, it just goes without saying, really. (laughs) absolutely i believe yes if you do not sleep and do not eat your training will be garbage i don't we i don't even feel like that we need a peer-reviewed double blind study for whatever for that i feel like that anecdotally we can rest assured to say if you don't eat from here on out and bother not to sleep uh what was it christian bell the machinist i mean that's basically where you're going to end up right okay so i bet his training wasn't good so if We'll get to that. Let's start. We'll stick to the bullet points. 
So the, the definition of fatigue, the one that I gave was it's a temporary and reversible kind of state of being physiologically. Do you have, do you have one that's like different or better? Yeah, I would just say it's a temporary and reversible reduction in exercise performance. Yeah. So as you said, it's a testable thing. So the implications of CNS fatigue for adaptation. So let's get into the CNS fatigue and how it affects motor unit uh, recruitment um, and then hypertrophy, uh, hypertrophy adaptation. I'm reading off thing when I read off the thing, sometimes I I say words incorrectly uh, when I'm just thinking them in my head. So... The implications of CNS fatigue, and when we say CNS fatigue, we're going to be talking about there's two types of central fatigue, and one is supraspinal, which occurs in the sensory part of the brain, and the other one is spinal, which has a little bit more to do with motor neurons. So we're going to be talking about those when we talk about CNS-type fatigue, and then that has an impact on motor unit recruitment. And I don't try to give too much away, but you and I have been going back and forth. It's kind of been an interesting week. Uh, with motor neuron and motor unit recruitment stuff to do with triceps, but we won't give anything away right now. So let's get into that bullet point. Let's talk about central fatigue relative to motor unit recruitment and hypertrophy adaptions that can be affected that way. Sure. So, I mean, basically, I think before we start talking about the, the kind of the fatigue models and the fatigue mechanisms, it's just really important to identify why are we why are we really getting into this? What's the purpose of talking about fatigue? How can I defend my statement that I made earlier, which is that if you don't understand fatigue, you're not going to understand how hypertrophy works. Uh, basically, um, when we're talking about uh, a central nervous system fatigue mechanism, it has the ability to reduce the motor unit recruitment that we're achieving, because that's kind of what the definition of a central nervous system fatigue mechanism is. Mechanism is it's basically reducing the level of recruitment that we can achieve, and we'll get into later on exactly how that happens. But basically, if we reduce recruitment, two things are going to happen. Firstly, we're not going to achieve the highest level of recruitment possible, and that's going to mean we're not going to then stimulate improvements in recruitment for future workouts so we're going to lose that adaption and that's not just an interesting adaption for the guys who are focusing on strength it's also an interesting adaption for their bodybuilders who want to grow more muscle later on because they're adding more motor unit access as they go through the program and then of course the alternative the alternative the the other uh, kind of adaption that we want to be aware of obviously is hypertrophy because whenever we reduce recruitment we're stopping ourselves from accessing as many muscle fibers in that moment at that moment in time and that's going to prevent us from achieving quite so much hypertrophy in that exact workout so basically there's two really interesting like as you would say interference kind of phenomena here where we're stopping ourselves from actually maximizing the benefits of this particular workout right now there's also there's a multitude of ways we can go from here um what are some of the things the average guy going into the gym when we talk about these interference effects to ability the interference effects at the central nervous system to recruit the highest threshold motor so so again to reiterate what we're saying here why this is really important for people to understand is if there is an increase in central fatigue, then there's going to be a decrease in your ability to recruit the highest of the threshold motor units, which control the largest of the type two fibers, which are the ones that have the greatest potential for hypertrophy. So if everybody's following, understands up to this point, once those particular central fatigue interference effects are in play, that's going to mean that you will not be able to recruit those largest muscle fibers to mechanically load them. So... 
Exactly, which is why we talked about this in our previous podcast about advanced lifters, because obviously those guys are the ones who can only really grow those muscle fibers at the very top end of the motor unit pool, which are precisely those muscle fibers that you were just talking about. So this is kind of how that fits into the previous podcast that we did on advanced lifters. Absolutely. So let's talk about the central fatigue. What are some of the things in the training metrics um, that can create more uh, central fatigue? I also want to be clear here for so everybody understands something kind of in one of the things that we talked about in our modeling for programming and all of that stuff. Every set you do is going to have a little bit more fatigue than the previous set within the workout. So even if you're taking adequate rest between sets, three to five minutes and stuff like that, each set you do will come with a little bit more fatigue, which means each set you do has a little bit less of a hypertrophy stimulus in each one. So as you go through the workout, this is why it's super important to understand how to mitigate or do things in your programming that help to mitigate that central fatigue. Absolutely. And this is actually where the exercise order effect comes from. So everybody knows that whichever exercise they do first in the workout gets the best gains and whichever exercise they do later in the workout gets the worst gains. And that doesn't just happen when we're training with, you know, say a body part split and we've got the same muscle being trained multiple times in the workout. It also happens when you're literally doing completely different body parts in every single exercise in the workout, like a full body workout, you're literally doing, you know, sort of one exercise for, you know, sort of maybe a pressing exercise, then a pulling exercise, then some sort of leg exercise. You get the same exercise order effect in both situations. So it's telling us that there must be both probably, well, there's definitely central nervous system mechanisms of fatigue going on there. But there's probably also peripheral ones. Before we go on to the fatigue model, do we want to kind of just quickly cover sort of the calcium amylator fatigue mechanisms as well? Because they kind of fit this pattern that we're talking about. So essentially what we've just been doing is explaining how central nervous system fatigue mechanisms have this interference effect. Well, calcium amylator fatigue mechanisms inside the muscle can also have interference effects, but at the mechanical tension level. So essentially, as I was just saying, we can get these uh, kind of interference effects building up over the course of a workout regarding the CNS, the central nervous system. But we can also get uh, within the muscle an interference effect because essentially any mechanism that involves calcium, any fatigue mechanism, sorry, that involves calcium ions is going to cause us uh, to reduce the level of mechanical tension inside the muscle fibers. And that's going to have the same interference effect, but it's going to have an interference effect at the local muscular level rather than the uh, CNS level. Yeah, we can do that. So that was something I kind of tied in just a little bit ago, uh, very quickly. But again, if somebody doesn't understand all these mechanisms, they probably won't have caught what I was, you know, picking up what I was putting down right there. So the calcium ion related fatigue is, as you said, is more localized, it's more peripheral and causes an interference effect with cross bridging uh, between the actin and myosin. And for again, if we're speaking over someone's heads, those are the proteins that are responsible for muscle contraction. So what happens is, is when there's an influx of calcium ions that don't get removed from the area where muscle contraction happens, then there's an interference with that muscular contraction and there's a reduction in force produced by that muscle. So I'm, I'm going through that head and rather than talk how you and I usually talk, I'm trying to give it to people who are like, I don't, I, I've gotten those a lot. Like, I love you guys so much. I get to, they're like, I don't always understand everything you guys are saying. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to give things in a little basic terms. So when you do, when you have the calcium on related fatigue, think localized muscle. When you have central fatigue, think overall ability to recruit muscle fibers. So when you have the calcium ion related fatigue, 
even if you could recruit that muscle fiber and calcium ion related fatigue is going to cause the interference effect of that muscle to produce force at its highest level. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we could go a very a tiny little step further and say that this effect is going to be much more prevalent in the highest threshold motion yes. muscle fibers because they're more kind of glycolytic. They're less capable of defending themselves against this kind of fatigue mechanism because they have fewer mitochondria. They're less able to remove calcium ions once they're uh, kind of placed into the cytoplasm. So uh, essentially, these are going to affect these you know, the central nervous system mechanisms that we talked about and the peripheral mechanisms that we're now talking about, both of them are really going to affect the highest threshold motor units or their muscle fibers. And that's kind of why we mention them so much in the advanced lifter kind of podcast, because they're basically stopping the advanced lifter from achieving pretty much any muscle growth once they develop these fatigue mechanisms. Now, they're going to be problems for everybody, but they're just going to be more problematic for people who've already kind of got to the point where they've achieved muscle growth in most of the other muscle fibers in the body. And something you said there, if nobody had any bells or whistles or little light bulbs go off in their head, was that I 100% believe the reason why I get so many people, so many thousands of people come to my groups and start making gains they haven't seen in a long time is because they're already pretty well trained and come in and they are creating a lot of fatigue that causes those interference effects. So we talked about this in the getting the last three to five pounds of muscle out of your natural potential, that these interference effects are really the hundred percent main culprit that keep you at a plateau or keep you from moving on and getting that last little bit of muscle mass. So I do what I feel like is a pretty good job of mitigating these effects, these fatiguing effects that uh, keep motor unit recruitment from happening at the highest level. And then we don't, we don't create a lot of localized fatigue, which you guys, if you hang in there, you're going to find out. Calcium ion related fatigue is the is is the devil in pretty much all of this and the root cause of pretty much all your lack of gains. Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things you used to say when I was when we were first talking about all of this stuff, we should get a t-shirt with mechanical tension, good calcium ions, yes. bad written on it. And basically yeah. everyone could just literally summarize <laughs> the entirety of the models that we're going to be talking about today with that, uh, that sort of two sentence. Uh, it's, kind of, uh, a, it's, a, it's a true, it's a true thing. It's an absolutely true thing. So if you, if you're just breaking things down to the most simplistic of terms, if you want to grow muscles, you got to have mechanical tension. If you want to reduce fig, you got to have as little calcium ion related fatigue as possible. So let's talk about calcium ion related fatigue. If my dog's bark, I apologize to everybody there right here. Somebody well, are we are we ready to are we ready to jump in and just do the the fatigue model kind of like during exercise? I mean, is that is that kind of can we move on? Yeah, to that? I, you know what I think I think that would be really. Um, that would be like something identify like that people can identify with. So let's let's you're going to go in and you're going to do a workout and let's talk about how these mechanisms affect you in the workout. So that'll give somebody kind of a visual as to what's going on here. So let's actually take the person and they're going into the gym and they're going to do their workout for the day and they've got six exercises and they're going to do four sets of twelve for all six exercises. I mean, if, like I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to use like what's like a, the common ways people approach the gym and how some of this stuff will come up. So yeah, let's I mean, take the let's take something like that. The average person is going to go in and do six exercises, four sets of twelve. Let's go through kind of the issue. You're shaking your head there. You're shaking your head like that because you and I would never program like that in a million thousand years. But there's so many people that do stuff like that. They're like, here's six exercises. I'm going to do four sets or five sets of 12 of these. And I see that and I'm like, I don't, why you, 
you don't understand why you're not making any progress. So let's take that person. They're going to the gym. They're doing that. What's going on here? Well, you know, let's let's just start with a single set failure to begin with. And then we can kind of very quickly, once we've built that model, which was probably going to take about 15, 20 minutes, <laughs> once we've built that basic model of how fatigue is working in that set, we can then extrapolate and say, well, okay, well, what's then happening in subsequent sets and subsequent sets and so on and so on and so on. And actually that side of things is very easy. The hard part is actually saying what's actually happening in a single set to failure, because essentially we've probably got about seven or eight things going on all at the same time. Now, the way I remember this, just to kind of, I mean, I don't need to remember it anymore because I teach it so much, but like when I first sort of set out to explain this to people, I needed a way to remember it. And the way I kind of started off was to say, well, how do we produce a movement? And at what point in that sequence of events that's involved in producing that movement, am I going to see a fatigue mechanism happening? And actually, you can see fatigue mechanisms happening pretty much everywhere uh, from the very moment you think about doing a movement all the way down to the point when the cross bridges are actually kind of forming. So uh, very quickly, if we start by saying, okay, we've thought of a movement, what once we've kind of imagined what we're going to do, what's the first thing that's going to happen? Well, basically, the first thing that's going to happen is that a, an electrical signal is going to appear in the uh, kind of uh, motor cortex, which is our central motor command. And the magnitude of that central motor command is going to determine how many motor units get switched on. So essentially, the first thing we're going to do, motor cortex, create a central motor command. Now, people can call that neural drive. They can call it anything they want. Really. I was going to say, I mean, that is what I think people constantly refer to as neural drive. Sure. I don't know Absolutely. why that term annoys me, but like that's what, that's what people generally, when I hear neural drive, I'm like, okay, just thinking about the amount of ability of motor units you're going to be able to recruit during this session. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just the size of the signal. Uh, and we've got a basic kind of quantifiable signal size. And then what happens is we send that signal down the motor neurons, which run through the spinal cord, and to the muscle that we're going to be using. And basically, that's all we really need to know as far as kind of the locations that we've identified so far. And there's going to be a fatigue mechanism happening, both related to that central motor command signal in the motor cortex. There's also going to be one related to the spinal cord transmission. So let's just park those two and keep going because this is the kind of the uh, sort of the system that I'm building. Once we get to the muscle itself, we're going to have an electrical signal that propagates along the cell membrane. So first things first, we're sending electrical signals along the surfaces of muscle fibers. So uh, that kind of action, those action potentials have to travel essentially. The next thing that's going to happen is those action potentials are going to get converted into a chemical signal. That's what we call excitation contraction coupling. I really don't like that terminology, even though it's the standard terminology, because it implies that we're coupling uh, or joining an electrical signal with the contraction, which is a little bit stretching the truth because we're not really doing that. What we're really doing is uh, forming an electrochemical junction. We're essentially converting electrical signal into a chemical signal. That's what excitation contraction coupling is because the electrical signal arrives and then calcium ions get dropped into the cytoplasm. So that's kind of the second thing that happens. So Third Chris, thing that Chris, Chris, one yeah, second. So, okay, so right there. So if people are going to go, what do you need calcium ions for when it comes to muscle contraction? Yeah, exactly. So the calcium ions then flow into the cytoplasm. So we've then got this movement of a chemical signaling agent. So uh, that then reaches the, uh, the, the actin, which is one half of the cross bridge. When actin detects the presence of calcium ions, it changes its conformation slightly, which attracts 
myosin, myosin then binds with it, produces the cross-bridge cycle. So essentially, when we look at what's happening inside the muscle, we've got four phases. We've got a phase where we're sending an electrical signal along the cell membrane. We've got a phase where we're converting the electrical signal into a chemical signal. We've got a phase where the chemical signal is then traveling through the cytoplasm and being detected. And then finally, we've got an actual cross-bridge uh, binding process itself. So I kind of think about these four places inside the muscle, uh, or muscle fiber rather, where fatigue mechanisms can happen. So in total, that gives us six real kind of places to think about as far as hypertrophy is concerned. I'm actually missing one out, which if people want to talk about, I can talk about later. But essentially, uh, there are these six major places in which fatigue mechanisms are going to happen, two in the central nervous system and four inside the muscle fibers. The, uh, the, the way I always thought about it was you have that, that tropomyosin chain that kind of wraps around um, actin. And then the calcium ions help to remove that binding site by the troponin. So that way, myosin heads can actually, like you said, be, they can look at, oh, tag to it, and then we do the pull. So for those who wanted to get uh, juicy today in terms of being nerdtastic, there we go. So that is the whole, when people were like, well, why do you guys keep talking about cal-? I've had so many funny DMs about calcium ion stuff over the last few years and asking, should I take calcium or what can I do? to redu-? like, Like, they don't understand what we're talking about when we say calcium ions. So hopefully things will become clearer after this podcast. I hope so. So when I, that's the whole deal with calcium getting pulled into uh, the cytoplasm to help fuel muscle contraction. Because again, muscle contraction is basically the locomotive engine part of muscle contraction is between actin and myosin and you need calcium in order to help that occur. So now, so people understand why we need calcium into the cytoplasm to help fuel muscle contraction, there we are. So now what happens is that when we're talking about calcium ion-related fatigue, there has to be a condition where we end up with an influx, a very large influx of calcium ions into those type two fibers that aren't very good at removing, because the calcium ions have to be removed. So when we talk about calcium ion buildup, the calcium ions need to be removed from the cytoplasm because they are responsible for uh, muscle damage. They're responsible for all the bad stuff. Uh, I just say, think of protein degradation is how I usually think of it. But there's a multitude of things that occur very, very bad. If you look up some of the words we'll probably use later, that's essentially what they do. Is there's a protein degradation that occurs uh, from some, some bad stuff that happens after. So... When there's a large influx of calcium ions into type 2 fiber, type 2X, type 2A, uh, what is it, A, the hybrid, there's hybrid fibers, there's, there's pure heavy AX, there's pure heavy myosin chains. So when you have a lot of calcium ions that get dumped into those type 2 fibers, they are not very good at dealing with these calcium ions. No, because they, they tend to be quite glycolytic. They're not as oxidative as the as the type uh, 1 muscle fibers. So that's that, that mitochondria, or the mitochondria are kind of what are very useful for removing calcium ions once they're kind of uh, dropped into the cytoplasm by the uh, excitation contraction coupling process. Right. And so type 2 fibers have low mitochondrial density, whereas the type 1 fibers, which are, are the more glycolytic fibers, have a high mitochondrial density. And so they're more capable to both defend themselves against calcium ions and then also to remove them uh, from the, the cytoplasm. So the more, um, if you could say, if somebody had a larger proponent of type 2 fibers, 
they would actually be more susceptible to more muscle damage. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm certain that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think we've kind of outlined those. So, so the, the, the kind of the framework that I was giving though, is just a framework of locations. So all yep. I did was kind of say, you know, here is a place where a mechanism of fatigue can happen. Um, but ultimately I didn't actually give any details about how those fatigue mechanisms happen. Can I quickly just run through them again and, and explain where I think the fatigue mechanisms are actually uh, kind of operating? Absolutely. Of course. Cool. So if we start at the beginning again, so I, I gave two mechanisms inside the CNS and then four mechanism places, locations inside the muscle. If we start out with the two in the CNS. Basically, when we're talking about uh, the mechanism of fatigue that can happen relating to the motor cortex, in order for a fatigue mechanism to be present, it must in some way stop us from achieving our normal maximum level of central motor command. And in order to understand how that happens, we have to actually understand how central motor command is limited in the first place. And we think it's limited because essentially, and this is the um, essentially the um, sensation of innovation uh, theory. Basically, we think that the central motor command produces a perception of effort in the sensory part of the brain uh, through the corollary discharge. So essentially, whenever we have a certain sized signal of central motor command, we must also have an equal sized signal of perceived effort in the sensory part of the brain. And essentially, when we reach our maximum tolerable perception of effort, that then stops us from increasing the corollary discharge any further, which in turn stops us increasing central motor command any further. So essentially, what we're saying is there is a feedback loop, uh, which gives us a feeling whenever we produce a certain amount of central motor command. And when we reach our uh, kind of maximum central motor command, we must uh, have reached our maximum tolerable perception of effort. So essentially, that st that sort of framework allows us now to say, well, okay, so when would we see a central nervous system fatigue mechanism that caused us to suppress the um, central motor command be below its actual maximum level? Well, any time we produce a feeling, which is disagreeable, it will contribute to a uh, perceived effort uh, in the sensory part of the brain. So essentially, if I'm trying to exercise to uh, kind of task failure in a particular exercise, and I can feel something unpleasant happening, like maybe I'm getting uh, kind of a burning sensation in my muscles while I'm exercising, or maybe I've been uh, kind of doing a multi-joint exercise and I'm, I'm kind of breathing really hard, the cardiorespiratory discomfort that I'm experiencing or the muscular sensation of burning that I'm experiencing are essentially going to produce uh, increases in my perceived effort without increasing my central motor command. And ultimately, what that's going to mean is that I'm going to reach my maximum tolerable perception of effort, which is the point when I stop exercising, because that's really the only thing that ever stops us exercising, reach the maximum tolerable perception of effort. At that point, I've reached it at a lower level of central motor command. The difference between that situation and a situation when I don't have those disagreeable feelings happening is essentially the central nervous system fatigue in that uh, brain and at the brain level, which we call supraspinal because it's above the level of the spine. Yeah. And so this came up before when we were discussing this, when it, when we were talking about actually hitting task failure, whether you want to tell it task failure, this is, I'm just bringing this up because it, it grinds your gears because of the, 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 the thing about volitional failure, task failure, muscular failure, you know, that they're all the same stuff. thing, right? It all comes back to, the fact that once you reach your maximal tolerable perception of effort, 
that corollary discharge is going to get so small that you're going to cease doing what you're doing. And because of motor unit recruitment, basically, then it's going to be, you're not going to be able to recruit any more motor units at that point. Is it, yeah, essentially, the, the maximum tolerable perception of effort is the largest amount of uh, perceived effort that we can experience. And if obviously, if corollary discharge represents the entirety of that uh, perceived effort it gets space, smaller, it gets smaller and smaller. Right. Well, if, if the quality discharge is the only is the only thing operating in that in that sensory part of the brain, then it means that we're, we've got no CNS fatigue. If we've got a load of painful sensations occupying part of that perceived effort, uh, then obviously the quality discharge, as you say, is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and it's going to create a bigger and bigger amount of central nervous system fatigue. But ultimately. We always reach, as you say, grinding my gears now, but you always, we, always reach, we always reach task failure because we reach our maximum tolerable perception of effort. A lot of people, I would say 99% of people running around talking about this stuff on the internet think that we can actually reach muscular failure, which means that the muscle is no longer capable of producing any more force. Well, you know, that's just not true because essentially there's always going to be a voluntary, what we call a voluntary activation deficit, which is uh, some motor units that are not being recruited. It just can't be recruited, right. And so if we've got that situation, then we must necessarily have uh, a brain limitation on the uh, kind of uh, the, the, the point of failure rather than a muscular, local muscular limitation. So, you know, it's, but essentially what we're talking about here, you know, getting away from my, my kind of grinding gears, uh, is essentially that um, the, the, the brain is limited by the effort perception and therefore if we have any other negative feelings as occur with lighter load strength training for example or as occur with you know big multi-joint exercises we tend to experience these sensations that's going to suppress the level of recruitment we can achieve because it's going to suppress the level of central motor command because they are occupying space in the sensory part of the brain and contributing to perceived effort yep i hope everybody got that we you we've covered this this one a multitude of times I try not to say uh, corollary discharge. I think I get it now. Um, that was, a, for whatever word, reason, that word gave me trouble forever. But for those um, who, the, the layman terms of that, if you're doing exercise like a like deadlifts that are really hard, like they're very heavy, the degree, your degree of perception plays a part in motor unit recruitment there and the corollary discharge, which again is like the copy signal from where you're recruiting motor units. It becomes much smaller when you have all of those things involved. So if you have a, if you're using a multi-joint exerciser, if you're doing high reps that are giving a lot of um, painful sensations and feedbacks, if, and then if you're doing a multi-joint movement with high reps and the cardiorespiratory demand is very high, then what happens is that your perception of effort becomes very high, which means eventually you're going to get to where you're not going to recruit motor units in order to continue that exercise. Yeah, basically, it's a trade-off. It, there's always going to be a trade-off between the perceptions and feelings that come from other sources and the perception that comes from the central motor command. And what we want to do is minimize the perceptions and feelings that come from absolutely anything else uh, so that we can maximize the um, kind of corollary discharge coming from the central motor command, which obviously then maximizes central motor command. So essentially, we're talking about training variables here. Any kind of exercise, this, well, basically, this is why we tend to program in the heavier end of the, of the rep range spectrum, because the heavier loads, and this is going to, I think, 
cause a lot of people to scratch their heads. But, you know, the heavier the load is, the lower amount of uh, supraspinal central nervous system fatigue it's going to cause. The higher the repetition range, the more supraspinal central nervous system fatigue is causing. So, so that so, people got that have got that backwards for so long. They will exactly. say this is like the old power lifting. I think it came from West Side and a lot of that stuff when Louis used to talk about like, uh, you know, burning out your central nervous system, all that kind of stuff. For the longest time, it would be said and repeated that uh, heavy, you know, the big heavy compounds cause tons of central fatigue. And then if you actually look at the research, what you'll actually find is that lower heavy reps cause very little central fatigue. And then that coming back to that, we'll get to that whole point of I did a bunch of squats and deadlifts and I feel tired. That's the completely... <laughs> <laughs> but this is why we started the conversation by saying that's not relevant because you know if you felt tired but your performance hasn't dropped then you don't have any fatigue right so the as you said one of the reasons why we program with load do you feel like that we we covered kind of like the outline the central fatigue and the peripheral fatigue kind well of we've, we've kind of we've yeah, no, no, I think we've got the overall uh, kind of uh, basic framework. We, I think we really need to fill in some of these uh, gaps because we've kind of just done the supraspinal CNFT, but I don't think we've uh, touched on the spinal level uh, kind of CNFT. But fortunately, it's very simple because as far as we know at the moment, it's just a desensitization mechanism. So essentially, the more uh, signals we send down the spinal cord, down the motor neurons of the spinal cord, the more basically this, those motor neurons resist uh, the transmission of the signal. So interestingly, this ties into what we were just saying, because essentially, um, again, it's going to be greater with the lighter load uh, kind of uh, the higher rep ranges because the the more signals we're sending down those motor neurons, the more they're going to resist uh, the, the the kind of the transmission. So essentially, we're likely to see more spinal level central nervous system fatigue with those light loads in the same way that we see more supraspinal central nervous system fatigue. So. Uh, you know, basically the, the kind of heavy loads uh, win on both of those uh, central nervous system mechanisms. So the way that I usually think about that, right, when we're going from the supraspinal level to the spinal level, is as you said earlier, there's a an electrical signal that gets sent. And so each time that it has to pass down through the spinal cord and over and over and over and over and over again, and then those, there's a fatigue mechanism that happens separately from what's happening in the sensory part of the brain, the motor cortex part of the brain through the spinal cord. So those are two separate things, although they, they impact each other, but those signals that get sent down through the spinal cord over and over and over and over and over again, there's fatigue mechanisms at the motor neurons that occur due to those repeated signals over and over and over again. Yeah, I think literally it's just a desensitization. So as we send a signal, it, you know, maybe we send 100% of the signal the first time, and then after that signal is transmitted, the next time we try and transmit the same signal size, it goes down to 99% or 98%. And it does look like it works fairly linearly, whereas obviously in terms of the supraspinal mechanisms, they're going to be much more kind of threshold dependent because most feelings and sensations during exercise are threshold dependent. We can kind of exercise and exercise and exercise and you can't feel anything and then you increase the intensity very slightly and suddenly you can kind of feel those metabolites building up, creating those burning sensations. So essentially, you know, there's a little bit of a difference in kind of the pathway or the time course, if you like, of those two fatigue mechanisms developing. But ultimately, both of them are going to suppress the level of recruitment that the, uh, is, is achieved at the muscular level. Uh, and they're actually probably going to do it in slightly different 
ways though because when we're talking about supraspinal that's probably the only truly central mechanism in the sense that it affects all muscles in the body equally so if we're doing bicep curls and we're getting this kind of supraspinal central nervous system fatigue from metabolite buildup and then we immediately stop and for some bizarre reason start doing calf raises then we should see um, a central nervous system fatigue effect in those calf raises despite the fact that it's completely different muscle but you won't see the spinal level CNS fatigue mechanism because uh, the motor neurons are different going to the different muscles. So there's a little bit of kind of uh, sort of uh, subtlety there in terms of what's going on. Yeah, the there is one study, I meant to pull it up. It's um, it's looking at training antagonistic muscle groups and whether supersetting them. And it's one of my favorites. And it actually gets to the end and says, if you superset these, there's a more, clearly a more fatiguing factor. And that was during the time where a researchers thought fatigue was actually like a hypertrophy type stimulus. And it's very clear when they actually took the rest between the presses and the, the pulls that there was an increase in performance. And then when they did the supersetting weights with the antagonistic muscle groups, there was a decrease in performance. And that's the part there where I'm like, okay, if you just did this set of bench presses and you go right to the set of rows, there's going to be a decrease in performance in the rows due to central fatigue. Yeah, I mean, they, they kind of uh, research it under the under the uh, heading of non-local fatigue, but basically it's the only thing it can be really is supraspinal central nervous system fatigue. And the other thing about spinal fatigue, getting back to the spinal fatigue with the motor neurons, that's a testable thing too. Like we have plenty of research that looks at motor neuron fatigue and a reduction in the, uh, how would you say it, like the sensitivity of these signals that are being sent. Sure. Yeah, so... There's, we have actually research that's looked at all those. We've actually sent some of that back and forth this week, looking at different stuff that's going on at the spinal level with the motor neurons. So all of those things, I think it's really important to, to drive the kind of that point home is like this belief when people say systemic fatigue or I'm tired or this or whatever, when we're talking about exercise science, when we're talking about muscle physiology, when we're talking about programming, all of this stuff is literally testable. So go ahead. Sure. I was just going to kind of drop in and say what the test is because yeah. uh, a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of the time people kind of get confused about what exact measurements researchers are, doing, are using. And I know that there's a number of people who kind of latch on to things like motor evoked potentials and various other kind of, uh, kind of specific measurements, which are designed to understand a little bit more about the nature of the central nervous system fatigue. But the reality is the only one that we're really interested in is voluntary activation, which is not to be confused with muscle activation, which is measured using electromography. Voluntary activation basically uses a, a combination of a maximum voluntary contraction, like a maximum isometric, isometric contraction, right. and then they superimpose an electrical twitch on that, and then they test it again at, in a rested state. And essentially what they're looking for is um, indirectly how much uh, extra force can the electrical stimulation create on top of the voluntary kind of uh, kind of contraction so essentially they're saying you know here's the muscle contracting as hard as you can make it can we actually find a way to make another muscle fiber activated that wasn't previously activated during your voluntary contraction and essentially it doesn't use electromyography it literally detects whether or not there's any capacity to evoke more force out of the muscle uh, using an electrical stimulation which, so which also very, is an interesting very... yeah interesting thing it comes back right when we were talking about earlier despite what you may think you're not actually you don't actually get full motor unit recruitment because we can strap up the machine to you and get way more motor recruitment than you're able to do on your own 
Exactly. So essentially, using a kind of comparison of a of a, a, a twitch superimposed on the maximum contraction and a twitch uh, sort of in a resting state, you can do a calculation which basically says, you know, has this amount of of voluntary activation capacity changed as a result of some exercise that we've done. We do kind of like a, a test at the baseline, then we do kind of a fatiguing bout of exercise, like a strength training set to failure, and then immediately test it again, and you'll find that the voluntary activation capacity is reduced, reduced substantially. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So for so, people who missed out on this, what we're saying is, is that a way of measuring central fatigue is that we set the baseline for these maximal voluntary isometric contractions, and then we see what we can get with uh, electric stimulation. So we were kind of looking at how many we get. So then what they'll make them do is they'll go in and do an exercise for a number of sets, a number of reps, whatever. And then you end up repeating those same metrics to see what are you getting from your own maximal voluntary isometric contraction, then what are we getting from that? So there's a way to kind of measure how much fatigue has occurred that in terms of motor unit improvement. And we kind of define this as neuromuscular fatigue after we perform these bouts of exercise. Yeah, I mean, basically, I would go as far as to say it's a way of measuring how many muscle fibers we're switching on voluntarily. Yes. Because the more that muscle fibers are switched on involuntarily, uh, essentially, those are muscle fibers that we've lost access to as a result of the bout of fatiguing exercise that we've just done. So voluntary activation is the only really uh, only real measurement that I would use uh, to be confident about whether or not um, a bout of exercise has caused supraspinal or spinal central nervous system fatigue, as we've been talking about. So when people are kind of using motor evoked potentials or intracortical inhibition measurements or silent periods or whatever else that they might want to refer to, I would say, well, hang on a minute. If, if, if that's kind of your sort of data that you're bringing to the table, does that actually fit with the voluntary activation measurements, which are the gold standard? And sometimes it doesn't because it's not actually measuring kind of central nervous system fatigue in and of itself. It's measuring aspects and you know features of that fatigue, uh, which are helpful for understanding a little bit more in detail, but they're not actually the gold standard measurement. So uh, I'm just kind of drawing people's attention to the fact that if somebody's using a study to defend some particular kind of position on this matter, does it test voluntary activation or not? So to give people an example of this, there was just a recent study done on squats versus deadlifts looking at fatigue factors because people have said forever that, you know, deadlifts are a highly fatiguing exercise, the stimulus to fatigue ratio, blah, 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 blah. And then when they did ran through these batteries of tests and did squats and deadlifts and then tested in VIC afterwards. Now they only did this for the vastus lateralis. The amount of fatigue present was similar for both. So now did they test voluntary activation as well? I mean, I know there's an older study that did that. Yeah, and they found was, voluntary I, activation changes were the same. So. Uh, it could be the it could be the same one. I was it around is two thousand seventeen ish. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah the that's the one, one yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I think they did do voluntary maximal voluntary action metric contractions on that one didn't they did they not i'm the the one that i'm thinking of it was a deadlift squat comparison and i'm pretty sure they did a voluntary activation as well as as well as the standard yes maximum uh, kind of voluntary isometric contraction force test they also did a voluntary activation test so and they were the same i think the problem is it's really 
kind of um, difficult to compare a kind of a squat and a deadlift because you're testing essentially the quadriceps. It's like, well, well the quadriceps as soon as really... I got down to that part of the study, because I was, yeah. somebody told me they, well, they tested it and blah, blah. And as soon as I got to that part of the study, I'm like, well, and even the researchers go into that one and say, well, we didn't really touch the, the spinal erectors. And I absolutely do. If think if they tested the spinal erectors, they would find a much higher degree of fatigue present uh, with the spinal erectors comparatively to the squats. Because I mean, obviously the supraspinal should be similar, but the the spinal level is going to be different because obviously the kind of the motor. Because you're is, absolutely you're tight. Yes, you're 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 yeah. having to activate different, way different. Uh, I think the you would be looking at high, way higher levels of using the spine, spinal erectors than in the deadlift than you would be the squat. So you should have localized fatigue there that's going to look different with if you were testing, say those or even the upper back comparatively to the quads i think they, they would be different there so it was like a, it was one of those things where they lined up the the study and then the methodology wise they're like okay guys you you should know and they even said that in the actual the write-up they're like we think it'll probably look a little different if we tested the the it's basically the upper back muscles and the, the mid back muscles i think there would be way more fatigue present in the lower back uh, and then the spinal erector muscles, et cetera, if they had done that with the deadlift. But that was, that's the one that always comes up, right? Is like, is the deadlift is like a deadlift have terrible, they're ton, they're very fatiguing, so forth and so on. And that comes up all the time. So I never, yeah, I, mean, I, think- I personally never found one particularly more, I guess, fatiguing than the other. And I even did them together. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think there are certain inexplicable <laughs> things happening um, in in the kind of the power lifts that uh, that I I'm not sure that the models we've got at the moment fully uh, kind of uh, are capable of of, of 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 really explaining. But certainly, as regards the mechanisms and something I was actually just about to say something something on the, these mechanisms we've been talking about. Um, by definition, these central nervous system fatigue mechanisms must be quite short lived. So I know I'm kind of uh, people. If people stop listening at this point, they're going to miss uh, what we're going to talk about. They're going to miss really, all really the really really good stuff. But, if they, they're um, just hanging there. A they're going to hear me. They're going to hear me saying. They're going to hear me saying. Oh, central nervous system fatigue is very short lived. Therefore, it doesn't happen after the workout. It does. So um, if you want to understand how central nervous system fatigue happens after a workout, then you have to uh, keep listening or skip ahead. <laughs> and we'll talk about how it happens after a workout, which it absolutely does. And there's some great studies showing it lasts for, can last after certain types of workout for at least a week. So, you know, don't go kind of sort of uh, thinking that what I'm saying here is that CNS fatigue disappears after workout. But basically, um, the mechanisms that we've described relate to feelings or they relate to, in the spinal cord, the desensitization of those motor neurons so both of those kind of processes are going to be over and done with within minutes after a strength training workout which has led as i said to a lot of commentators on the in the fitness industry saying that cnft dissipates within a few minutes and you know everyone's kind of um, done that at some point i think but basically um these mechanisms do only last for a couple of minutes and therefore we shouldn't expect them to influence the post-workout fatigue uh, kind of central nervous system fatigue responses. So essentially what's going on inside the workout isn't going to be a reflection of the uh, kind of fatigue that we experience after the workout. And that's why we'll come back to talking about that later. I just wanted to kind of drop that one in and say, uh, you know, because there's a very popular um, kind of idea that if we achieve a really high level of uh, central motor command, motor unit recruitment, neural drive, whatever people want to call it, in the workout, that will cause a lot of uh, post-workout central nervous system fatigue. And no. 
there isn't a relationship between those two things. When uh, we were going through the workout is totally different. Absolutely. And when we were going through the, what, what was pretty cool is when we were going through the, the metabolic stress, we were getting ready for the metabolic stress podcast. And I had like a, had about a week of a deep dive looking at the lactate stuff when they've done lactate measurements on 800, 1200 meter sprinters, et cetera, so forth. It's this enormous amount of lactate, right? That, that occurs. And then within 20 minutes of after, the tra- it's just gone. So uh, when we talk about central fatigue, the 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 interference mechanisms that cause central fatigue within the workout are gone very quickly after the workout. I would say twenty to thirty minutes or so. You're probably looking at they're already gone. Uh, and then that is also why. And I don't know how much we want to get into this. That's also why that consistently you have to standardize for rest periods for your training if you're going to figure out kind of what volume you're going to use too, is because there's a massive difference between that one minute rest period and two minute rest periods. And across the research, it's very, very clear that the shorter rest periods, and I've tried to explain this to people. They say, well, why is it a shorter rest period? Uh, not getting the same amount of malfibro protein synthesis. I'm like, well, you're not recruiting um, the highest of the threshold motor units when you take those shorter rest periods because of the fact that you're not allowing some of that central fatigue to subside. Yeah, exactly. Those metabolites that you were just talking about in those runners, basically the accumulation of metabolites, when it reaches a certain level, uh, is going to stimulate receptors inside the muscle, which tell the brain that the muscle is experiencing these conditions. And the way it does that is create this idea that the muscle has this burning feeling in it. And essentially that is creating a perception of effort that is going to impact on our ability to produce a corollary discharge. And it's going to create supraspinal central nervous system fatigue. So we don't leave those rests between sets. We're not going to get uh, the, the levels of recruitment in the subsequent sets. So you got the metabolite accumulation, short rest period, your metabolite accumulation that is going to um, cause central fatigue. And then on top of that, let's say you have cardiorespiratory demands that is also going to be a negative feedback that's going to cause central fatigue. So when you add these things together, this is why those short rest periods are kind of, you know, they're kind of butthole for, for, you know, getting the maximum amount of motor unit recruitment. <laughs> that's just, that's the word I can think of at the moment. It's really bad. It's really bad, Chris. Uh, it's not, it, it's really bad. It's not good. So it's, those are the things that are going to cause that reduction. As we talked about earlier, they're going to shrink that corollary discharge and reduce the amount of motor recruitment that's going to happen. You're going to hit your maximal tolerable perception of effort much quicker. So I, like I said, I think we've, um, we've kind of put these pieces in place and then I think that we've kind of got the modeling out there. I guess I, I've just been chomping at the bit to get some of these questions because I, I read them online and I get so irritated because I'm like, we, we actually have, that was something I didn't even say at the start of the podcast. And I remember thinking yesterday, I was like, there's some things I want to get out. I should have wrote them down. Number one, if you go through the literature, the two things we really have the most amount of stuff on is fatigue and volume. We have a lot of literature on looking at fatigue and volume. So whenever these Yeah, things- but that's that's kind of like comparing a minnow with Moby Dick. I mean, it, like f- fatigue is literally obliterates it, the volume. No, it does. I mean- no, it's not even I said the two that we have <laughs> the most on is is fatigue and volume. However, however, the amount of data that we have on fatigue is just it just goes on forever. It's insane. I mean, li- literally you could take 
you could print out every single hypertrophy study that's ever been done and put them in a pile and then you could print out all the fatigue literature and the fatigue literature would be like a hundred times greater than the entirety of the hypertrophy literature it's not even close i mean literally we know more about fatigue than about anything else and there's people running around going oh well i don't know about fatigue i'm like just go and read some because there's so much there's literature you i don't even it. know where you would start the the past year or so uh if you i've spent time where i would just take like a, a few days out and I would end up reading somebody trying to kind of um, say that some of the stuff that we've talked about with fatigue either wasn't supported in research or whatever. And I see that facial making or that, you know, that the interference effects that, that none of that was real, or that there was weak evidence or it was overstated. And I would start, I would go out and start reading and then I would just find the trail and it would go on forever and ever and ever and this is what i really think i don't think they've looked into it i legitimately think they have not looked into the food the, the amount of fatigue research is so overwhelming it goes on for so long and covers so many different aspects of athletic performance training outcomes it's just it's it's on rodents there's human studies there's every aspect of fatigue that you could want to look at so when people say stuff like there's weak evidence for this or there's not enough data for this i'm like it's the one thing we have an enormous amount of data on yeah absolutely i mean people will say all the time like oh you know there's no evidence that there's for example there's no evidence that uh, central nervous system fatigue lasts for days after workout i'm like well here's a study from 2006 <laughs> showing that it lasts eight days i'm like you know just where where do you want me to start because we have we have tons I, of them that even look at like bro style go into the gym do four sets of bench four sets of incline yeah. and then measure fatigue over weeks following and i'm like what are you are you guys bothering even looking at this stuff because it's already there it's like we have tons i of think it. it's because it's not cited very well by the hypertrophy literature so unless you actually go looking for the fatigue literature in and of itself you're probably not going to find it i certainly found because i kind of had a bit of a watershed moment about sort of i don't know maybe five or six years ago when i was kind of i'd been focusing a lot on the strength training literature and i decided i made a conscious decision to switch and start focusing almost exclusively on the on the fatigue literature and i kind of realized that there's all like like almost sort of um a kind of uh, a, a division between those two areas of literature and they don't really cross cite each other very much so if you're literally just kind of going down rabbit holes from the hypertrophy literature you may never actually be aware that this gigantic quantity of citations exists that are literally able to explain almost everything we want to know about hypertrophy and yet don't ever cite <laughs> any of the hypertrophy literature or even try and and explain it because the hypertrophy literature is is kind of so separate and what it's is really what is amazing is when you understand how how often these interference effects occur, whether it's with motor unit recruitment or whether it's with mechanical tension, you can find tons of other things that connect directly to them. Like for example, I was telling you about like with my good friend, Alan Aragon, and he had posted up, I know we only use people's names when it's a positive effect. So, uh, and Alan had talked about the fact that we have so much research now that clearly shows that ketogenic diets you can't grow muscle on even a surplus. And I'm like, well, yeah, because when you have, when you're low in glycogen stores, it interferes with uh, muscle contraction due to excitation contraction coupling failure. 
So I just sent him over a couple of things. He's like, why he was blown away. He's like, Oh crap. Like there's the mechanism right there. I'm like, yeah, but we, these are, these are old. These are old studies. We've known about this for a long time. It's, it's wild. I remember reading this write up um, about the fact that mechanical tension, we've known that mechanical tension was the driver for muscle growth in studies as far back as 1979. They're there. You can go look them up. And, and then we have the whole fitness industry, like for 30 years going like, Ooh, what happened? how does muscle growth happen? There's, there's a study literally looking at mechanical tension uh, in muscle fibers as far back as 79 and go, this is what causes it to grow. And then let, let me a- go one step further. <laughs> let, let me, let me just go one step further on that, Paul, because this is, this is, this is really what makes me laugh is that uh, we've got this really clear understanding of how um, peripheral fatigue also causes these interference effects. So when I was running through the model earlier, I said, basically, we've got a cell membrane conducting a signal. Yeah. We've got the excitation contraction coupling, converting the uh, electrical signal into a chemical signal. And then we've got transmission of the chemical signal through the cytoplasm and then acting on myosin form cross bridges. Basically, fatigue mechanisms can happen at any of those four stages. They can happen at the cell membrane. They can happen at the, uh, the what's called the triadic junction, which is where the excitation Contraction coupling takes place, and they can happen inside the cytoplasm. Any of those three basically are what we can call calcium ion related fatigue mechanisms because they all basically function from uh, start from exactly the same point, which is that we accumulate a lot of calcium ions in the cytoplasm because of this excitation contraction coupling process. Normally, the process is supposed to drop calcium ions into the cytoplasm and then pull them back out again, but it's a leaky process. We end up with calcium ions remaining behind. The presence of those calcium ions remaining behind stimulates uh, enzymes. Enzymes degrade the triadic junction. They also degrade uh, the cell membrane, and they also kind of essentially indirectly end up causing a loss of sensitivity of actin to those calcium ions. But basically, um, what we're going to see is that the crossbridge formations cannot happen because once the structures are damaged, whether it's the cell membrane that's damaged or whether it's the uh, triadic junction that's damaged, it's going to stop the processes happening normally. So we can no longer transmit electrical signals because the cell membrane is damaged. We can no longer convert electrical signals into chemical signals because the triadic junction where excitation contraction coupling failure is damaged. So we're not getting crossbridge formation, which obviously causes what we measure as fatigue, reduction in muscle force, exercise performance, but Critically, it happens because tension disappears. We can't create mechanical tension if we haven't got active actin and myosin cross bridges forming. Now, this is the thing that I thought was funny as you were saying that. Basically, at some point, hypertrophy researchers kind of said, hmm, maybe fatigue causes hypertrophy. I'm like, guys, <laughs> what I've literally just described to you, what I've literally just described to you is that these fatigue mechanisms are stopping mechanical tension from happening. How could you possibly interpret Interpret that as a stimulus for muscle growth. I mean, seriously, you know, what? Wh- where did you get that hypothesis from? <laughs> there's I mean, a just... there's an old Dana Carvey stand-up where he talks about. I don't know why this was where my brain went with that, but there's an old Dana Carvey stand-up where he talked about when OJ was on trial, and he said talks about how frustrated that the um, the the prosecutors were because they had this mountain of evidence, just overwhelming mountain of evidence. And Johnny Cochran was on the other side going, acting like, why are we even having a trial? And I, it's just one of the funniest skits of all time. And that's what I was thinking of when you said that, because we just have, we have this overwhelming amount of evidence that shows that fatigue absolutely is our biggest hindrance 
to continuing or improving hypertrophy. And then we get this, the whole scientific community for at least a decade or longer saying, maybe fatigue's actually a mechanism for hypertrophy. It's, it, we're like, it's one of those like total pull your, like we don't have hair, but if we had it, we'd pull our heads. Like how, how did you arrive at that? It's the one thing that stops it. It's the thing that stops it the most. Like, how would you think well, it's a stimulus for it? Absolutely. I mean, the, the calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms that we've outlined there very briefly are literally suppressing mechanical tension. Therefore, they must necessarily be suppressing the hypertrophy stimulus. Now, I, I just cannot get my head around the fact that people would interpret that as a stimulus. But I mean, when we look at the metabolite-related stuff, I mean, we covered this in the, meta in the metabolic stress podcast but basically the really cool thing about metabolite related fatigue mechanisms of predominantly acidosis is that they don't cause that effect they don't really suppress uh, cross bridge formation uh, predominantly they slow it down and yeah they can suppress it eventually but they don't stop it happening the way that the calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms do the way i kind of divide the kind of mechanisms is that calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms literally stop the cross bridge formation from happening whereas the metabolites don't and they uh, as i say in, in many ways literally just cause a slowdown in muscle shortening velocity so ultimately when i'm thinking about fatigue playing out inside a muscle what we're really saying is that if metabolite-related fatigue is predominating, it's going to permit calcium-related fatigue to essentially, sorry, let me clarify. If we have metabolite-related fatigue happening, it's going to stop calcium-related fatigue from being the primary uh, local muscular fatigue mechanism. Obviously, if we don't have uh, the uh, acidosis occurring, then calcium-related fatigue is going to be the primary mechanism. So there is kind of some interplay there at the local muscular level. What we really kind of do want to avoid that mechanical tension problem happening is the metabolites. Now, the interesting thing there is that that can then lead us into CNS fatigue because too much metabolite accumulation is going to cause CNS fatigue. So ultimately, kind of in a place where, as you were just saying, we don't really want a lot of fatigue happening in any given strength training set if we want to avoid these negative things happening, either at the muscular level from calcium amylate fatigue or at the uh, kind of central nervous system fatigue level uh, because of the metabolite accumulation uh, triggering uh, the sensations that then cause central nervous system fatigue. So again, and, and that also, the uh, the also this the is why we use heavy there. loads. Yeah, the other thing, well, heavy loads, but the other thing there is that whatever uh, link that we're training the muscle at for that exercise plays a massive factor as well. So when we're using short muscle length movements, we tend to not get very much calcium ion-related fatigue, but we tend to get high amounts of uh, metabolic uh, stress or metabolite related fatigue when we're using a short muscle length and then we're training with high reps. Uh, we're not going to incur a lot of muscle damage that way because of the fact that we're not going to get a lot of calcium ion related fatigue. So the kind of the one aspect that we didn't cover there was the length you're training the muscle that's going to play a factor in the type of fatigue that's going to be induced majoritively too. So because if you're using a longer muscle length movement, uh, as we discussed in the stretch mediated hypertrophy version, was that when you're using longer muscle length movements, uh, you're going to incur more calcium ion-related fatigue because of the fact that the uh, the um, stretch-activated ion channels get opened up, and then the calcium ions really get the flow at that point. Yeah, we've got two sources of calcium ions into the muscle fiber. We've got the, the, the standard excitation contraction coupling process, and then we've also got these stretch-activated ion channels that open at long muscle length. So anytime we're training with a long muscle length, we're going to get extra calcium ion-related fatigue, which is going to cause more of uh, the mechanical tension suppression. Now, just quickly building on that as a practical implication, um, calcium ion-related fatigue 
doesn't really go away very quickly once it's been formed. So when we're thinking about our strength training, I mean, you started talking about an example uh, a long time ago, <laughs> which we've kind of ignored. But basically, coming back to our, our kind of uh, subject who's doing, you know, six sets of, what was it, six exercises? Six exercises for like four sets of 12. Then basically, every time they do the additional set, uh, and especially if they're doing multiple exercises for the same muscle group, they are going to have calcium amylate fatigue building up um, inside the muscle. And because calcium amylate fatigue involves tiny amounts of damage, because enzymes cause damage, um, those uh, fatigue mechanisms don't go away inside the workout. So if somebody's doing like, you know, they do a set and then they do a second set and then they do a third set. It doesn't really matter how many how many minutes of rest they take between those sets. The calcium amylate fatigue is not going away. The CNS fatigue is going to go away, which is why short rest periods can still be a problem. But on the local muscular level, we're creating a smaller and smaller stimulus with each additional set that we do <laughs> because we're suppressing the levels of mechanical tension, which ties perfectly in now to the volume podcast that we did I know. a while back. I, so everything we say it, is completely consistent. Yes. That's what, when you have a model, it's really funny how all those things work that way. So the part I was getting at there is what you just said. When I took, when people talk about recovery online, yes, I agree. You need to sleep and you need to eat and not be the uh, Christian Bale from the machinist. I don't think that that's a very good way to approach training recovery. The part I was getting at is that is like, let's say you, I'm going to go in and do a bunch of squats and reverse lunges and I'm going to do you know, deep hack squats along with that. And then I'm going to do stiff leg deadlifts or whatever. I'm a bunch of long muscle link movements for the legs. Once you do that, you are basically creating this enormous amount of calcium iron related fatigue to all of those longer muscle length, all of those stretch position movements. There's nothing you can do after that, that speeds up the recovery of the fact that I've allowed all the calcium, that excess calcium ions to get into the cytoplasm. And now there's going to be, um, I don't know. I don't know if you wanted to get into the outcomes. That would be more like a. I think we talked about it with that muscle damage podcast. I think we did. The fact that there's there's uh, uh, calpanes, uh, which are type of uh, proteases that get released into there that do protein degradation. So the point is, there's once that happens and that process gets kicked off, there's nothing you can do to quote unquote increase recovery against that. That just has to run its course. Yeah, exactly. So this kind of calcium amylate fatigue mechanism uh, group that I was talking about, basically um, that sticks around for the whole workout, but it also then flows into the post-workout period. And essentially it's the only kind of post-workout fatigue mechanism uh, at the beginning of the post-workout period, uh, but obviously it then flows into and develops and causes other things that we talked about in the muscle damage podcast. But basically uh, very quickly, we create the calcium amylate fatigue by the accumulation of calcium ions, whether that's because we're doing lots and lots of sets, uh, creating a lot of activation, whether it's doing higher repetitions, that's going to create a lot more calcium amylate fatigue because more activation means more calcium ions, whether stretch position exercises, any of those things are going to create more calcium ion influx and therefore more calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms. But as you were saying, they also create muscle damage because the same proteases that produce uh, the calcium amylate fatigue in the triadic junction also create uh, damage to the myofibrils and then we have an inflammatory response to that calpane induced damage which then stimulates further damage and also supraspinal central nervous system fatigue so just kind of squaring that circle squaring that circle i said earlier um and that's actually not that long ago really but i said earlier that we would come back to this idea of post-workout central nervous system fatigue post-workout central nervous system fatigue is caused by the inflammatory response to calcium amylate fatigue in the workout so 
if we create a lot of calcium amylated fatigue in the workout, we're going to get a lot of muscle damage. That's going to produce an inflammatory response. The inflammatory response is going to flow out into the bloodstream, circulate, and then the brain is going to detect that. And uh, essentially, when it does that, it's going to produce an increase in our perceived effort level. That is going to then suppress our ability to create motor command because the corollary discharge can no longer be as big as it needs to be in order to maximize that central motor command signal. So, so, so the thing is, is that when we talked about uh, fatigue being testable conditions, you could literally do low frequency fatigue testing to see if excitation, contraction, coupling failure was present, but also do testing at the same time to see if that the fatigue that caused that is also causing central fatigue and that would be the case so in other words when we talked about uh being testable conditions one of the things that we have talked about in other webinars and uh in the educational portal and that kind of stuff is that if you had something that you had set a baseline for like a medicine ball throw or an explosive movement or whatever where you're recruiting doing your best to recruit the maximum amount of high threshold motor units in that quick movement that it comes back to uh um, if central fatigue is present, kind of a really kind of like a layman's way to test, hey, how much central fatigue is present. So low frequency fatigue is how we test to see if excitation, contraction, and coupling failure uh, is present. So uh, do you want to touch on that real quick? Because we can kind of, we yeah. kind of, because like for the central fatigue, when that was really easy, if you, you could literally take a medicine ball, knowing if you're fresh, not suffering, you know, take a few days off, five, four or five days off, and do some medicine ball throws for like height or you know jumps or something like that something an explosive movement that you could actually measure and that would let you know okay kind of this is where i'm at when i'm not suffering from any central fatigue but when we're testing for calcium iron related fatigue at the local level it's it's called low frequency fatigue um yeah so i mean it's just the ratio of a um a low frequency force twitch mm -hmm. to a high frequency force twitch i mean it's not something that we would do practically in a gym setting but right. it's what research would use to assess the presence of calcium amylate fatigue mechanisms but just answering the question behind the, the question which is that you know can we see that you know in accordance with the model that we just described that all fatigue mechanisms post-workout must be present at the same time because they're all caused by the same thing which is uh, calcium, calcium we, we can see that by comparison of various different tests post-workout from different types of exercise. So if we look at eccentric training, you know, we know that eccentric training causes a lot of calcium ion accumulation during the workout because uh, we're opening a lot of stretch activated ion channels on a lot of muscle fibers because the high level of activation in the eccentric contraction. That should tell us that we should experience a lot of calcium amylate fatigue measured by low frequency fatigue. We should experience a lot of muscle damage and we should experience a lot of supraspinal central nervous system fatigue because of the inflammatory response. And yes, tick, tick, tick. We get all three of those things happening after eccentric training workouts and they actually last quite a long time, suggesting that they are quite pronounced. If we then look at other types of exercise, or see slightly less of an effect of all three of those things. You know, if you look at normal kind of standard strength training, we're going to see some of those things, but only lasting for a couple of days. If we start comparing training variables, we can start to see that light load strength training is going to cause more supraspinal, well, strictly speaking, we haven't got a supraspinal measurement, but just more central nervous system fatigue post-workout, which it does. Uh, we can see that it's going to create um, more... Um, uh, excitation contraction coupling failure in the form of low frequency fatigue. We don't have any muscle damage measurements, but if somebody ever does that and actually takes a scan and looks at uh, light low strength training failure, I would expect light low strength training failure to produce more localized muscle damage than a standard heavy strength training workout. Um, 
so basically we can start to piece the literature together and say the more calcium ion accumulation happens in the workout the more of all of the post-workout fatigue mechanisms are going to happen which just as a practical uh, kind of point here is really interesting because I know that sometimes people want to periodize strength training and say they're going to do a type of strength training here and then follow it by a different block which does you know something different and they're thinking that they can experience different types of fatigue post-workout fatigue in each of those training blocks and you can't you can't actually change the type of post-workout fatigue you experience you can't pick and choose which fatigue mechanism you get you can only really moderate the magnitude of the calcium ion accumulation which therefore moderates the magnitude of all the post-workout fatigue mechanisms so essentially you know your different blocks are going to involve different amounts of fatigue they're not going to involve different types of fatigue yes and i think what people it would behoove them to understand that for their programming that mitigating the calcium ion related fatigue as much as possible is going to be one of the one of the first steps because as, as we just talked about the fact is if you take calcium ion related fatigue and you remove it as much as possible then you're going to have the least amount of fatigue as possible which also means you're at least not going to be affecting motor unit recruitment in kind of a long-term span and then you can do other things within the workout itself in order to keep motor urine recruitment at the highest level as possible. But once the calcium ion related fatigue causes that long spanning inflammatory process that affects motor unit recruitment, that just has to subside and run its course. But if you just have, if you're just doing stuff within the workout itself, that you're going to have some central fatigue occur, but you can set up your workout in a way that keeps central fatigue to a minimum within the workout by choosing, as we always go over, we're using moderate amounts of volume to low volume and then using heavy heavy sets for, for um, low to moderate reps uh, or short muscle link movements if you're going to volumize stuff, that kind of stuff. And we've, like to us, like we've covered that so many times, it seems very standard, the reason why we're doing all of those things, but it is to mitigate the fatigue aspect as much as possible. And again, even in my own training and your training and my group's training and all that kind of stuff, every time that I go through and I... They don't even know they're guinea pigs sometimes, but I'll go through and put some stuff back in there and I can literally watch their feedback and they can be like, uh, I'm not you know, seeing as much progressive overload this cycle as I did the last one. And they want to make those changes. They will start talking about the quote unquote wizardry. They just don't understand that you absolutely can program in a way in your training to keep fatigue as minimal as possible. And when you do that, you're, you just will be shocked at the results that will keep occurring from there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because just to kind of give some physiological mechanisms to that, essentially, when we're talking about our calcium amylator fatigue, uh, that uh, lasts post-workout. So what we've said is during the workout, it suppresses mechanical tension by stopping the formation of cross bridges. It carries on doing that yes. into the post-workout kind of recovery period. So yes. basically, it's just doing the same thing. We're just continually experiencing a deficit in our ability to rec uh, to form cross bridges inside the affected muscle fibers. Um, muscle damage is doing more or less the same thing, except not quite so effectively. It's just removing myofibrils. And obviously, if we remove myofibrils, we can't actually produce force with them because they're not there so essentially uh, you know muscle, i mean I, I feel like i have to spell this out because of the, of the problem that we tend to see in the hypertrophy literature and not understanding how uh, kind of uh, sort of generally these things it's work it's difficult but, for a myofibril to produce force if it doesn't force exist. If it's not it's there, not yeah, there. Exactly. Yes, it is. You know, feel like I have to spell this out, but basically, then again, we're experiencing that loss in the ability to produce mechanical tension, which is going to suppress the hypertrophy stimulus, and then the inflammation that's causing the supraspinal fatigue that's going to suppress motor unit recruitment, as we talked about before. So we go into another workout when we've got these 
mechanisms of fatigue present, we are essentially going to find that we are not recruiting as many motor units. We have got lower levels of mechanical tension in the affected muscle fibers. We're going to get a reduction in the amount of hypertrophy we can stimulate from those workouts that we're doing in a state of fatigue. You know, And the interesting thing about it is that I think historically um, the literature and hypertrophy literature, strength and conditioning literature, and even bodybuilders have been more um, able to accept the idea that fatigue from a previous workout will cause an interference effect with their ability to stimulate gains. But they don't really accept that their fatigue during the workout can uh, cause that interference effect, even though many of the fatigue mechanisms are essentially the same thing. Exactly. I think that's a really, really good point because when bodybuilders uh, talk about fatigue, they're almost always thinking about fatigue in the aspect of, oh, I got to recover from this workout. And they don't understand that fatigue is existing within the workout itself as well. In other words, as you continue to train, it's not about, oh, I got to recover from that workout. It's you need to recover during the workout as well. Yeah, I mean, basically, the, many of the fatigue mechanisms are essentially, specifically the calcium related fatigue mechanisms are essentially the same. Um, so basically, if we think about calcium unrelated fatigue during the workout. In the workout itself, we've got calcium unrelated fatigue accumulating because of the accumulation of calcium ions, various different places that that can happen. Uh, and then as I say, it prevents a kind of a stimulus from being experienced in the workout because it's suppressing mechanical tension. It just carries on doing that because the enzymes that have caused damage inside the muscle fiber that prevent these normal processes from happening just have continued doing that and those processes then need repairing. We can't really come back and start creating mechanical tension in those muscle fibers until we've gone through the repair process after the workout. So uh, the same mechanisms are happening uh, in the workout as occur after the workout. Although obviously, you know, differences in how supraspinal central nervous system fatigue occurs. So the supraspinal fatigue is occurring differently in the workout from after the workout, but essentially the calcium unrelated fatigue mechanisms are pretty much exactly the same. So um, again, just kind of coming back to what we were saying a few minutes ago, basically, uh, I think there is a wider acceptance of the idea that we can have an interference effect of fatigue from a previous workout on what we're doing right now, but there is less of an idea that we can really uh, have an interference effect of uh, the fatigue that we are actually experiencing in the workout itself. So uh, I think if we were able to just uh, accept that those things are pretty much the same, then we'd start to understand uh, a bit more about why uh, the approach that we recommend in terms of strength training for bodybuilding is to avoid fatigue as far as possible by using longer rest between sets, by using heavier loads, by preferring certain uh, maybe exercises that don't cause quite so much fatigue like uh, contracted position versus stretch position where possible, obviously not always possible because of the principle of neuromechanical matching, but ultimately this lower fatigue kind of uh, sort of approach I think is definitely practically a lot more uh, kind of uh, useful and valid than uh, kind of just throwing everything in the kitchen sink into a workout and hoping for the best. Yep. Okay. So with that said, uh, let's get into some of the common, I think, either questions or the applications, uh, any of that kind of stuff uh, that tends to come up uh, with these um, in terms of people kind of not understanding that. What's the way? Well, I'll just actually get into the question. So one of the things that comes up is people will say, that the, the research is weak for saying that high reps cause more uh, 
fatigue than kind of lower rep sets. Well, I think it's CNS fatigue, isn't it? Because I mean, I think most yes. people who've kind of seen um, how strength drops after a, a heavy load set or after a light load set will know that uh, the overall fatigue has to be greater after the light load set. But I think there's probably three or four studies now that's shown that CNS fatigue is greater after uh, light load strength training than after um, or high low sorry light uh, load or, or low force uh, contractions compared to after um, heavy heavy load or high force contractions. One that I, uh, I can no? pull right like right out uh, right out of my brain immediately is there's there's definitely a velocity loss study that shows once you get above I think it was around twelve repetitions there was significantly more fatigue than even as uh, just a difference in eight repetitions. So we, we actually see a neuromuscular fatigue difference. I think that's total fatigue though. I think in terms of the voluntary activation measurements rather than the total force measurements, I think voluntary activation, there's three or four. There's a very famous one that was done a few years ago where they literally just looked at the level of recruitment that could be achieved in a high force isometric contraction versus a low force uh, isometric contraction, um, you know, to, to maximal fatigue levels. and this same results were, were produced that the recruitment levels are just not as high right. at the end of the set in the light load uh, kind of or the light low force contraction is obviously isometric um so yeah i mean I've, I've done an faq on my patreon with all of those studies uh quite a long time ago so i'm not quite sure why uh people still think that's that's not happening yeah exactly so that's the one that i end up hearing a lot or I don't know a lot, but quite often. I'm, I'm thinking we should change our, our, when people say, um, you know, the evidence is weak for, or there is little evidence. I think what I'm hearing is I haven't bothered searching for. <laughs> I, think, I think that's yeah, what I'm I, hearing. I, I, because if you, if you spend any time going out, looking at this, there's just so much, uh, so much data on fatigue. That's one of the ones come up. And I, I think it's the three that you're thinking of. The velocity loss one, uh, I think, was the case. You said it was looking at overall fatigue, but there are some yeah, maximal vol voluntary isometric studies that do look at. Uh, there's some that look at very. It's like very long, like higher reps or very long sustained contractions at low force, right? I don't know if I'm thinking of the right ones. Oh yeah, this. I mean, there's some fascinating stuff that yeah. goes on for really, really like five, ten percent of them. Yes, yes, yes. It shows enormous amounts. Yes, yeah, enormous amounts of fatigue. So when people say that, I just, it's one of those things I'm like, where do I start? I like, where I'm so overwhelmed because we have tons of data that shows higher reps will consistently produce more central fatigue than lower reps. I, I don't know. And even the kind of, the, the, I think when people, you know, you take it up to the, up to the boundary between strength training and, and, and endurance activity. And you can see that during strength training, I mean, as a very, 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 rough approximation strength training is approximately 80 percent peripheral fatigue 20 percent central nervous system fatigue and then endurance training is probably more like 60 percent um, central nervous system fatigue and 40 percent uh, kind of peripheral fatigue which i think again people look at it and they scratch their heads and go how how is that possible well, actually it's perfectly logical when you kind of start to break it down you just don't have the uh, metabolite related fatigue mechanisms at all so you're entirely reliant on the calcium unrelated fatigue peripherally, uh, which generally, if it's working in only the slow twitch muscle fibers or mostly slow twitch muscle fibers, because that's what endurance exercise does, uh, you're not going to get very much of it because the oxidative capacity of the muscle fibers is very high, so it defends itself. So the only real source of fatigue you can have in those scenarios is, is going to be central nervous system fatigue. So, you know, I think just as a kind of cohesive group of studies, 
you know, it's fairly clear that the lower the force level, the lighter the load, the more the CNS to you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's that's one of the ones that has come up. Um, uh, I think it would be great like to make sure we include those in the Patreon articles, like kind of the ones that look at and say, hey, here's the, the instances where we see higher reps creating more central fatigue within the workout than the lower reps do. Um, the kind of the other one that will come up a lot will be people who say, well, where's the fatigue aspects behind where more volume shows more excitation, contraction, coupling failure, where in other words, if we're doing more volume, uh, they, they kind of also on the, this was a, uh, interesting one too, on the latest, uh, training to failure made a regression. They insinuated that it would actually be less fatiguing to go ahead and go to failure and do less volume than to try to leave a few reps in reserve and do higher amounts of volume. But, as far as doing more volume, creating more calcium iron related fatigue, um, which, which studies that you do you think of immediately come to mind whenever we talk about that one? Well, there's a number of studies that show, um, I mean, I'm, there's two off the top of my head that I, I'm probably going to drop into the Patreon article, but um, there's a number of studies that basically show a progressive increase in uh, sort of measurements like low frequency fatigue and increasing duration or increasing number of repetitions or, you know, isometric contractions, or whatever they may be. But ultimately, you know, I think this is one of those things where you say to people, well, you know, if increasing amount of exercise doesn't cause increasing amounts of fatigue, what is going to? Well, yeah. I mean, seriously. The, I mean, the, the ones I can think of, there's a couple, there's some rodent studies that looked at calcium ion related fatigue. And what's pretty funny is, is if you go through those, they outline the model exactly. It's the same way every single time they do it, right? So whenever they induce long muscle link exercises, you know, for the rats, so they create calcium induced related fatigue, it's the, they can do the testing and it's like, it's repeatable every single time. It's pretty cool. Um, those are old. Those, I think one of the ones I've seen you from then goes back to, I want to say it was 97 or something. It's no, like this, these, it's this is ancient. Uh, yeah. In, there's in, like, in, and, well, when people go, ancient. oh, that's an old study. I'm like, bro, it's physiology. It's, it hasn't changed. Nothing's changed. Seriously, and some so of the you, physiology stuff is better yeah. than what's being done now. Yeah, some of it actually is better. Some of the older studies just, are actually yeah, way better. Just, and then, yeah, so, yeah. but that, those are completely repeatable. So, um, let's see here. That was the one that comes, studies that show short rest periods versus long and implications for the effective reps model. I don't, I, I'll, I actually think that- I think There's only a, two studies, only two hypertrophy studies that have actually measured um, short rests versus long rests. And they both found the same result, which the is same result. short rests So this was, I saw this, this guy put up some content trying to say the effective reps model wasn't real because, oh, and one, and one of those, so he tried to use one of those studies. This is how the amount of, this is a, actually a perfectly good place to bring this up because of the fact that we've been talking about fatigue. So if you, when somebody talks about the effective reps model, we are talking about it contextually in the idea that you're not dealing with central fatigue. So in other words, if you're recovered, not dealing with fatiguing factors or interference factors, somewhere around five reps is what you're going to be getting in terms of stimulatory reps. Once you put fatiguing factors in, that changes. So the person that was talking about how the effective reps model wasn't real was trying to say they trained a failure in both of these groups, but one group used a short rest period, one group used a long rest period, and then uh, myofibril protein synthesis was was not as elevated in the short rest period group. I'm like, 
Right, because of central fatigue. So that, well, you're actually using a stimulating rep there, you which do, is, yeah. or well, more than one stimulating yeah. rep, which is kind of one of the interesting ways that we can use the model. If to actually, help us I was going to say that, Chris, anything, if anything, all that study did was further cement the model. I don't like if people don't understand how this works. It's like, well, we have stimulatory reps, but once we put fatigue in, we're going to reduce the amount of stimulatory reps, even if we're training to failure. So that's, yeah, I mean, there are, this is what we came back to last time we talked about the effective reps model, which is that, um, you know, yeah, there are things that the effective reps model doesn't explain. For example, you know, you do strength training for a muscle group like the quads at a short position and a long position. You're going to get more hypertrophy in the group that trains at the long position. How does the stimulating reps model or the effective reps model explain that? But it doesn't. But then no other model does either. So, you know, no other volume measurement model, which is what the effective reps model is designed to do. It's designed to give you a quantification of training volume. Does any other training volume uh, model explain the difference between long and short uh, kind of muscle length training in something like the quads, which is very sensitive to uh, stretch mediated hypertrophy? No, it doesn't. So is it fair to then say the effective reps model is rubbish because, you know, it doesn't explain that when no other model does either? So what are you comparing this with? I mean, have you got a better model? No. So, you know, just put up with it and use this one. Yeah, the, the, we, the thing about the simulating reps model is that we always talk about fatiguing interference effects so if you have a fatiguing interference effect there's going to be a few stimulatory reps i don't it's almost like people don't grasp like the 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 entire you can't do that with sets to failure model the only other model that's even remotely competitive with the stimulating match model is the number of sets to failure model that no other model exists it's even close the stimulating reps model. So with a stimulating reps model, we can say we are losing a, a stimulating rep because of the actions of central nervous fatigue. And we explain exactly how it happens mechanistically. Yep. The sets to failure model cannot get anywhere close to explaining that because it can't show you what you're losing when you include. Because, well, that is because when we use quantification. the, yeah, because when we use the stimulatory reps model, we do account for our fatigue. We, we absolutely look at fatigue. And then if you're just looking at sets to failure and you don't standardize things like rest period, fatigue, and all that kind of stuff, you're just saying it's this many sets to failure. I'm like, well, there's a lot of gaps in there you're leaving out if you're trying to kind of be able to quantify how we got to this amount of stimulus that occurred that created this amount of hypertrophy. But with this, you can't actually quantify because you can. You can literally go, this is the short rest period, this is the long rest period, this is the number of reps I'm losing in the short rest period so, scenario. <laughs> Those are the stimulating reps I'm losing. Therefore, I'm quantifying exactly right. what's happening. So ultimately, I think there's a really nice, it's actually a very, very nice defense of the model as being useful. And, you know, all models are kind of useful, but all of them are wrong. I mean, it's just like, you know, how are we going to use this model? And we can use it in these scenarios. And I just repeat myself, but there is no other model that is even close to being as powerful as the model that we've described here in terms of the training volume quantification. There isn't one. It doesn't exist. Yeah. So that's why when people say um, like there, there's a whole, it's not a, actually all in the, in the simulatory reps model. It's part of it. It's actually part of the model because in that case, it is, yeah. Yeah. So, well, what I mean is, is that if we, once you have the stimulatory reps model and you understand contextually, the baseline of it is coming from a place of not having an interference effect of fatigue. 
once we put interference effects of fatigue in there, we still have the model. We just reduce and say, okay, well, the fatigue now takes away from stimulatory reps, whether it's because of motor unit recruitment or whether it's because of a reduction in cross bridging and so thus mechanical tension. So the model actually is very pliable in those ways in that if we have different types of fatigue that interfere with those things, the model actually can move with it and say, oh, we have. Yeah, because you can literally say, here is the repetition I've lost. You yes. can't do that with a set right. to failure model because it's like, well, how much of the set to failure are you losing? 5%, 10%? One, if you, as soon as you start talking about repetitions, then you're talking about the stimulating reps model. So ultimately, I think this is going to be one of those cases where people are going to argue and argue and argue about the fact that they don't like the stimulating reps model. I don't, know, I don't know what's no not else to like about it. I don't know what's not to there's like no about else it. To <laughs> I mean, what's the alternative? I mean, the only literature alternative is the number of sets to failure. And that one doesn't clearly doesn't have right. any capacity to explain the stuff that the stimulating reps model has. So ultimately, I think I just hear people grumbling about it and I'm just like, well, what's your alternative? And they haven't got one. No, they just complain. That's all they do is complain. So if they, they so say, yeah, I'm like, <laughs> okay, well then present us a more accurate model. Like one that's like even more precise because it pretty much fits into every longitudinal hypertrophy study when you talk about training to failure or even one or two are like it literally gives you a map to say here's the outcomes and so far as you go through those it gives you the exact outcomes and the same thing it does for standardizing rest periods so um i think the last one i had on the list here was i think you just covered that was like some of the studies that show central fatigue central fatigue from calcium ion muscle damage for in the days following. I think that was the, the last one that comes up, but I think that... Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of those now that have been done in the last few years that are from normal strength training workouts, and we see a couple of days worth of CNFT, which is exactly what we'd expect from a couple of days worth of muscle damage and inflammatory response. If you go back to the kind of the fatigue literature and look at eccentric training studies, which are obviously designed to cause a lot of muscle damage, especially in certain populations, you can get a lot longer than that. I mean, the, one of my favorite studies shows eight days worth of CNS fatigue after an eccentric training workout in untrained people. You know, and as I say, I think that's 2006. So, you know, it, it really does grind my gears when people say, oh, well, we've only known about CNS fatigue after workout for the last couple of years because they refer to these couple of strength training studies that have been done in the last few years, really good ones. Um, but they ignore the fact that we've known since 2006 that you can get eight days worth of CNS fatigue after an eccentric training workout, which is basically just kind of creating more muscle damage than we would get after normal strength training, really. Yep. Okay. So I think that actually, I think that covers pretty much all of the the fatigue stuff in, um, in about, was it about two hours as usual? Yeah, about two hours. Not quite, not not quite, quite two, hours, two but I think we got no, it in, into, right, got it into two. So uh, those are the, the general ones that I tend to just come across. And as I've, we've kind of reiterated here throughout the podcast is there is an absolute mountain of evidence on stuff on fatigue out there. So I implore everyone listening to this to, uh, and Chris will have the, the, the Patreon article up uh, pretty much. You have an exhaustive list uh, in your, in your, over at your Patreon, in your FAQ that goes through various fatigue mechanisms. It's all there. I really have had trouble. I usually like to spend a couple of weeks before we go into a podcast and, and see what people are saying, put, you know, make some content to see what the comebacks will be. And really, I think it just comes back to people are not looking into these areas. 
because maybe they look at one study or maybe they look at one factor, but there's so much research on fatigue. You, it's pretty easy. It would be the easiest to build a model with to understand how fatigue affects your training. So there's, there's just, like I said, if you look at the, it would be like comparing, you know, Australia to Maldives in terms of like land space, you know, it's, it's, it's Maldives is tiny little, and that's like the volume to fatigue, you know, comparison there is like, you know, Australia to Maldives is, it's kind of like the, Australia would be the land mass of, of research that we have on fatigue and then Maldives is what we got on volume. Um, and we have a ton, a ton of literature on volume. That's, that was a really easy one. Uh, I think the volume one's just as easy as if once you standardize for rest periods, you know about where you're going to be. And yet I get asked that every single week. Um, and then the, for the fatigue one, it, to me, it's very clear. Once you kind of understand these mechanisms, what we need to do in our training to modulate it in order to reduce the amount of fatigue that's going to occur there, both within the training section itself and in the days after. Yeah, but I'd also go one step further and say the type of fatigues that we want mm -hmm. to focus on reducing are specifically the calcium amylator fatigue um, but, you know, mechanisms because they are the most problematic during a workout. Because if you think back to what we were saying about CNF fatigues during a workout, we can pretty much avoid that if we just take a rest. I mean, at any point, if, we've, uh, if we feel that we're developing too much CNF fatigue during a workout, we can literally just back off walk around for five minutes and it's pretty much all gone. Uh, I mean, not completely gone because obviously there's going to be some accumulation happening, but mostly, whereas calcium amylator fatigue, once you've created it in a workout, you're pretty much stuck with it then until you know, you've had a couple of days worth of recovery. So if we focus on reducing calcium amylator fatigue during a workout, it's going to also enhance our post-workout recovery as well. And we can do that obviously by, you know, sticking with the heavier loads, um, you know, uh, using our long rest periods, you know, being careful about how much stretch position exercise work we do and keeping our volume under control. Because if we start doing tons and tons of volume, we're going to get loads of calcium amylator fatigue. Absolutely. Okay. I think that is going to cool. wrap us up for the fatigue podcast. Like I said, we're, we're recording this one on Riverside. I'm hoping when I, when I hit stop that it, it just has, has me download the file the first time using it. Um, and uh, we didn't actually even do a test run because I like to live dangerously. So, Chris, where can everybody find you on your social? Um, well, the easiest place to find me is on Patreon. I tend to answer questions on there more than I do anywhere else. So if you have a question related to the podcast, please do ask it on Patreon. It's free to access. You don't need to sign up to do it. Sorry, you don't need to pay me anything to get access to it. I think you do need to create a Patreon account. Um, so... Basically, please do um, ask me questions there. It'll be linked, hopefully, in the podcast description. Um, I'm SNC Research on uh, Patreon. I'm SNC Research pretty much everywhere else apart from Instagram, where I'm Chris A. Beardsley. Chris A. Beardsley, and yes. I can be found. Uh, actually, I downloaded downloaded. I don't know if you saw this. Instagram has a new Twitter um, competitor app now. Have you seen? Did yeah, you I see that? I've seen it and I've been invited, but uh, I'm not convinced. I'll wait and see what happens, I think. I'm playing with it to see what it's like. So you, everybody can find me on Instagram at liftrunbang1. Um, and then I haven't, I tried to, I, I lost my old Twitter account um, because of uh, of all the, the COVID stuff. Um, so, because I said stuff we know now is true. And, uh, and then I got my, that was for Elon took over. 
So I lost my, my Twitter account for that. Uh, so I don't, I haven't played around there because I had a, like a small following on Twitter. I think I had like 6,000 followers or something, which was nice. But uh, basically, I've just been on Instagram. Uh, like I said, you can find me at LiftRomeg1. If you go to trainheroic.com and search for me, you will find a list of all of my programs and groups, and you can chat me there. Chris, until next time, we will wrap it up for today. Have a good one. You too.